Good morning, everyone. That was a pretty good response. That's great. It must be recovering from all the snow and everything, and we're not supposed to have any more for a long time, are we? <laughs> Measured in hours, maybe. It's good to be able to welcome each one of you to our service of worship, and especially we'd like to welcome any of you who may be visiting with us. If you are a visitor, maybe this is your first time or your first time in a long time, if you'd raise your hand, Pastor Kevin has a packet of information about the church he'd like to place in your hands. There's a card we would like for you to fill out and then put that in the offering plate later, and then we can acknowledge your visit by letter. Just make sure you keep it up uh, high enough and long enough, and he'll find you and get that information to you. If your row hasn't passed the friendship pad yet, please be sure to do so. Pass it back and then forth, and note the names that are there so that we can be greeting each other by name, which is always a good thing. A couple of announcements this morning. Uh, first of all, we began a visitor's new members class this morning during the Bible school hour. It's not too late if you'd like to join us next week. Maybe it just slipped your mind. Uh, we'd like for you to fill out an application. You can pick that up in the back, but if you don't, just come anyway, and we'll, we'll get you on board. So that would be um, next Sunday morning during the Bible school hour in the large conference room on the other side of the chapel. If you're thinking that you'd like to know more about the church or you'd like to be joining We'd like to encourage you to do that. Also, if you'd like to be baptized next Sunday evening, please see one of the pastors or call the church office. Now, I mentioned this. If you would like to be baptized, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you would like to be baptized uh, because that's what the Lord has called us to. So let me encourage you, if you've been on the fence or wondering, should I or shouldn't I, the Scripture's real clear that uh, believers should be baptized, and we'd like to encourage you this next Sunday night is the next available time here. The bulletin is filled with opportunities to serve the Lord. We've just completed our missionary conference last week. A lot of opportunities for you to jump right in, and I'd like to encourage you to do that. Men's ministry is going to be at Camp Sankinac this Saturday. Be sure to be reading about the opportunity to minister there. The Easter egg outreach is coming up April 12th, and we need a lot of help there. In addition to that, movie night on May 16th is coming up. You can read about all of these things in the bulletin. Uh, there's an opportunity to serve with international students. You can read that on the back of the bulletin. Ladies, there's a tea party coming up on May 10th. There's so much more to read in the bulletin. All we can do is highlight it and point you in that direction, but it's, it's up to you to be able to take that responsibility. We'd like to encourage you to pray for the family of May McDaniel, uh, who is home with the Lord now. Her service will be here on Friday at 11 o'clock with a visitation in the hour beforehand at 10 o'clock.
Thank you, bronze bells. They look like nice, polished, refined girls, don't they? But you don't know them the way I know them. <laughs> you should have seen them yesterday at our dining room table eating spaghetti and meatballs on a vinyl tablecloth with no plates. The spaghetti and meatballs in the middle of the table with their forks pulling it to themselves. It looked like a total, total mess. But we appreciate their music. top of our order of worship, Matthew chapter 3, verse 3, reminds us of a prophecy spoken by Isaiah about John the Baptist, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Let's take a moment in silence right now and ask that the Lord would help to prepare our hearts so that the Lord Jesus Christ could be exalted once again. So let's take a moment now in silent prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that as that word invocation is here before us, we understand its meaning, but we understand also that we're not invoking you to do anything, that you're pleased to be here with us as we worship, and you're here with us and within us, and we thank you for that. And thank you that together, even though we've sung it many times, we can praise you from whom all blessings flow because we mean it from our hearts, and we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. single person in this room is greeted and shown the love of the Lord Jesus.
Please keep out your hymnals. And if you turn with me to the back of your hymnals to reading 637. 637. This is Christ's baptism. I will read the light print. If you could all respond by please re um, reading the bold print together. I'll begin. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? 
I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and are you coming to me? Then Jesus, when he had been baptized, came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him.
Thank you, Nancy. At this time, please turn in your hymnals to hymn number 505 and ask that we remain seated as we sing together, Love Lifted Me, 505. join me as I pray. Father, it's through your grace alone that we're gathered here this morning and able to call you Father. We thank you for sending your son. We thank you for the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from all sins. 
We thank you for welcoming us into your family. And Father, as we join here together as a community of believers, we first come before you and ask for forgiveness of sins. So many times that we don't even think about you in our daily lives, times when you prompt us to share the gospel with someone and we ignore it. So many things that we need to be asking your forgiveness for, and we do that this morning. And we've come to worship you as our almighty God. We thank you for the work of the Holy Spirit as he indwells us. We thank you for the things that you do each day that we many times don't even recognize. And Father, as we worship you this morning, we come before you with supplications. We ask first, Father, for our pastors and their wives and families. We so grateful to you for these men who lead us in our worship and understanding of you. We ask, Lord, that you would protect them, protect them from the snares of Satan who would love to trip them up. We ask that you would give them the time that they need with their families, times of rest and relaxation, because we know they spend so many hours on our behalf. And Father, we think of our fellow believers, many in pain, many sick, some who have lost loved ones. We think especially this morning of John McDaniel, as you've called May to come home to you. Father, we ask that you would envelop him in your peace, knowing that death is not the end but the beginning, and he will see her again. Father, we thank you for our elected leadership. We thank you especially for Steve Muir and his work on the Outreach Committee of the Board of Elders. Father, we thank you for the many outreaches of this church. We think especially of the Easter egg hunt that's coming up and the opportunity to have many, many young children and their parents here visiting our church. We ask that you would use those who volunteer to share your love with them. Father, we thank you for our service people. We thank you for Neil Kaufman as he serves you. We ask, Father, for all of our servicemen that they would continue to lean on the training that they've had, many of them here in this church. We thank you for these many believers who are out there as lights for you as they defend our country. And Father, we think of our students. We ask for Kelsey Bretz and Paul Burns Father, we thank you for these who have grown up in Christian homes who have, have been under the influence of the teaching of this church. We ask that you would keep them faithful to you, keep them in the word, and be with them as, as they are sought by the world, the flesh, and the devil to stray from you. We ask that you would protect them. Father, for Wes and Cindy Williamson, our missionaries to Honduras, we thank you for the time that we've had with them here. We thank you for the blessing that they've been to us. We ask that you would be with them as they very soon travel back to Honduras to a situation that is not the same as when they left. And for the possibility of changing ministries, we ask that you would give them uh, comfort and give them your guidance. We ask, Father, that you would be with Ellie as she remains behind to go to school. We ask that you would 
continue to keep them active in the ministry, protect them as well from Satan. And we thank you for the many lives that have come to know you through their ministry. And Father, as we look back on the recently completed missionary conference, we thank you for the testimonies that we heard about the gospel being shared in all kinds of different ways all around the world. We thank you for the stories of believers in other countries praying for us. And we ask, Lord, that you would be with us now as we return to you some of that that you've given to us, things that we call our own, but we know that they really belong to you. We ask that you would use it in furthering the word of God going out through our missionaries. We thank you for the rich heritage of our church and for our ability to participate with them through our giving. So we ask that you would accept our gifts now. In Jesus' name.
you please take out your hymnals and open up to hymn number 493. Let's all stand and let's sing together, It Is Well With My Soul.
may be seated. I was watching you. You were singing that like you meant that. And I trust it's true for everybody here that it is well with your soul, having a right relationship with the Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, as we open your word, we thank you for the privilege of knowing it is your word and knowing that what you have for us here is something that will benefit each one of us because your word is useful. It's useful for teaching us and for training us and for rebuking us and correcting us and doing all sorts of things in our lives. My prayer today is that for each one of us to be changed by it in some way, to be more like the Lord Jesus, more like you want us to be. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we're introducing John the Baptist, and let's turn to Matthew chapter 3, and we'll pick this up together. As you're looking, let me just mention one thing. John was not a Baptist. Um, They didn't have them back then. But he did baptize a lot of people, and we're going to be seeing that. But I do believe this, that John the Baptist was non-denominational, like we are. Matthew chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. A voice of one calling in the desert, Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire." His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. This morning, I'd like for us to take a close look at John the Baptist. You may say, whatever for? We have enough odd-looking people with strange diets and weird clothing styles already. Well, you realize that at that time, there was nothing odd or weird about how he dressed or what he ate. What it was was very simple, very plain. It wasn't something that he was going out of his way to look ostentatious. And we'll see that in some of the scriptures a little bit later on. That will be pointed out. I want to look at John the Baptist as an example. Not an example of what to eat or what to wear, but an example of some very important things. Because if ever there were an individual to be an example of what it says in Colossians 1.18, for example, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Who's he? Christ, so that in everything Christ might have the supremacy. Isn't that what John the Baptist was all about? Jesus was number one. Jesus was to be supreme. As we look at ourselves, I hope that each one of us can be very introspective and ask ourselves questions like, 
is it really all about the supremacy of the Lord Jesus or in my life is it all about me? Is it about me or is it about the Lord Jesus? If ever there were an individual to be an example of Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, it was John the Baptist. For to me, to live is Christ. So we're going to be looking at someone who is an example. It's this John the Baptist that we just read about in verse 12 who said, But after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. Or it could mean not fit to untie or unloose. That's the John the Baptist, the one who said, he must become greater, I must become less. And so as we look at him as an example and we ask ourselves the question, is Christ supreme in my life? For to me to live, is it Christ? Is my goal when I wake up in the morning that he's got to become greater and I've got to become less because it's not about me? How much of my life is totally about me and what I want, what I'd like to do, what I'd like to do in the future, and not about what the Lord Jesus wants or how I can exalt or honor him? How many of you know the name Carol Spinney? One, two... Just two. How many of you know this character on the screen right now? Does every okay, the hands go up. Dave Gingrich's hand went up very proudly and quickly. I'm not sure what that's all about, but he, Okay, that's that's obviously Oscar the Grouch. Do we know this one? Okay, we know him. We know Big Bird. This is Carol Spinney. We don't know him nearly as well, we don't think so, but He's not a well-known celebrity, even though he brought the other two characters on the screen to life in that program that we're all familiar with since 1969. A skilled puppeteer, he's been content to work behind the scenes. We saw it when we were looking at the life of Joseph, behind the scenes all the time. John the Baptist, behind the scenes, and this man Carol Spinney, behind the scenes all trying to do their best so that someone else would get under the spotlight. And that's really what we've been called to do as Christians. If the truth were known, would we be the same kind of example as Joseph and John the Baptist and Carol Spinney? Would we be able to have it said of us, those verses that we just saw a moment ago, would it be true of us that Jesus is supreme in our life? Do we live for him above all else? Are we okay with fading out of the picture so that the focus will really be on Jesus? Are we content with being behind the scenes? Those are very, very important questions for every single one of us. It doesn't matter whether we're old or young. Very important questions. And I've got to say that at many points in all of our lives, we probably would be saying, you know what? These are not nearly as important as they should be. Do you realize that there has been and is a world full of disillusioned people who are living for themselves or living for the allurements of the world and they aren't ending up very satisfied? Jesus is not supreme. He's not their focus. He's not their goal. There are all these other things, but these other things leave them empty. Jesus could fill the emptiness in their lives, but they're looking for satisfaction in all the wrong places. How many of you read the sports page? ever. You read the sports page? (laughs) Wow. I thought there would be a few more than that. (laughs) How many of you watch the sports 
on the news at night or go out and get something to eat? Okay, a few of you. Well, as I read the sports pages, and I do, I read the sports pages, it looks more like it's the uh, criminal pages than the sports pages. Have you noticed how many athletes recently have driving under the influence. It's actually, there's some one guy that's involved in a murder, and there are others who are involved in all kinds of sexual assaults and all sorts of things. You read through, there's, there's almost a whole column that they could make for that. And here are people that are wealthy, that are popular, that are skilled in their profession, and they're looking in all the wrong places for where their satisfaction should be coming, and it is quite evident that they're in despair. It's right out of the pages of the book of Ecclesiastes. Everything to them is vanity of vanities. It's a bubble that's bursting. Let me give you a sampling of some disillusioned people down through history. Here's one lady that said, a little work, a little sleep, a little love, and it's all over. You know who that was? Some of you have read her mysteries, Mary Roberts Reinhardt. Edmund Cook, the diplomat, said, this life is a hollow bubble. Voltaire said, we never live. We are always in the expectation of living. Someone else said, life is the jailer of the soul in this filthy prison. Talking about his body. Life is the jailer of the soul in this filthy prison, and its only deliverer is death. Browning could write poetry but couldn't live life. Life is an empty dream. Shakespeare Life is a walking shadow. Another person said, love is a dusty corridor shut at both ends. And someone else said, life is reasoning on the past, complaining of the present, and trembling for the future. They would all say, for to me to live is empty, is useless, is futile. But the believer doesn't have to say that. The believer in the Lord Jesus Christ has a purpose for living, has a real focus. John the Baptist had that focus. He had a purpose for living every day of his life. He was part of God's plan from the very beginning of time. And we've already read the results of Isaiah predicting that he would be coming. Malachi predicts that he would be coming. An angel in the beginning of Luke predicts that he will be coming and tells what he will be doing. Part of God's plan from the very beginning. I'd like for us to look at his life using several questions this morning. And I've got to tell you in advance, you will become frustrated because there's a lot of Scripture. I'm going to have to read some quickly and allude to some others and bank on the fact that you know a lot of the stories that are there. There's so much about John the Baptist And I want us to be able to see him paraded before us again as an example of what it is to really focus on pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ and away from ourselves. First question, who was John? Best way to answer that is who he was not, first of all. So if you'll turn with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, we'll find out who he was not first, and then we will find out who he was. John chapter 1, verse 19. Now this was John's testimony when the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Christ. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. 
Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the desert. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now some Pharisees who had been sent questioned him. Why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. Who he was not. The Jews of Jerusalem, obviously men of authority, sent priests and Levites to ask John who he was. It shows the fact that he'd been noticed. They understood all of these people are coming from all over, wherever the Jordan River is, they're coming nearby. And he's going up and down and around in the desert, and they're coming. And now the religious leaders have got to be very, very careful. They want to protect their own interests, and that's what they have in mind. We know from our reading already in Matthew chapter 3 that John the Baptist had a great influence on the people. Again, they were coming from all over, all over Judea, it tells us. Matthew 14, verse 5, Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered him a prophet. And so people were taking notice of him. The first thing that John does is to make clear that he is not the Messiah. He was not the Christ, the anointed one they were expecting. Now, why would he say that at first? He would say that because Luke 3.15 tells us the people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Christ. So here he was. He was an attraction. People were coming from all over. Their lives were changed because they were confessing their sins. They were repenting. They were being baptized. And a lot of the people were expectantly wondering, is this the Messiah? Can it be? There were great expectations at that time. They were waiting for something big to happen. The meter on Daniel's 69 weeks was running out, and some of them were aware of that. The scepter was almost gone from Judah. It was time for Shiloh, for Messiah the Prince, to come. And how they hated their bondage to Rome at that particular time. Picture it this way. It was like Christmas Eve to these people. And here comes someone. Could he be? Is it possible that he's the one? If you look back at John 1.20, very interesting. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely. I am not the Christ. Now, in those words, there is a peculiar form of speech. It implies a very positive, unmistakable, emphatic denial. It's the idea of a man shrinking with holy indignation at the very thought of being regarded as the Christ. Can you picture him? No, no, don't don't think for a minute that I'm Christ. No, I am definitely not him. In fact, he's greater than anything you've ever seen. And all I want to do is keep pointing the finger at him and getting farther and farther away and getting less and less so that he can become bigger and bigger and that you'll know who to worship. They asked him if he was Elijah or the prophet. And he had to tell them again that he was neither of them. Even though in Malachi it says the prophet Elijah is coming before the great and dreadful day of the Lord He dressed a little bit like Elijah. He was in the same desert that Elijah was. There were similarities. But he said, no, I'm not Elijah. 
He would come in the spirit and power of Elijah, but he wasn't Elijah himself. In Deuteronomy, it talked about a prophet, Moses said, like me from among your brothers that you will listen to. He will be coming. But he says, no, I'm not that prophet either. I'm not that, that one mentioned in Deuteronomy. So he's not the Messiah. He's not the Christ. He's not Elijah. He's not the prophet. Well, then, who was he? We saw a little bit as we were reading, and we're back to Matthew now. As we look at verse 3, we said very simply, it says, This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. So he, he's a man. Luke chapter 1, verse 80 tells us he lived in the desert. He didn't just go there for a while. He lived in the desert. He did dress a bit oddly for our time, but not for that time. And he did have a strange diet, not for then, but for now. But I like to think of him beyond that in a way that will help me to remember. I've got a lot of memory techniques because I, I need them, and I need them more and more as I go on. And I think of him in this way. I think of him as a bullhorn. He was a bullhorn. It says a voice in verse 3. He was a voice, and it must have been a very loud voice. As picture, there he is by the river, people coming all over, and he doesn't hold anything back. Not only was he a bull, bullhorn, I picture him as a bullfight also. So we've got a man right now, we've got a bullhorn, we've got a bullfight. Why do I say a bullfight? Do you remember pictures of the running of the bulls? As people are running down the streets and chasing it, it's a, it's a huge kind of an attraction, the bulls, and the bullfight itself. And this man was an attraction. And it tells us, once again, if we look at verse 5, it tells us that people went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. It almost sounds like the Great Commission happening before their eyes at that particular time. So he's a man, he's a bullhorn, he's a bullfighter, an attraction, he's a pit bull. If you look at verses 7 through 12, you could even call him a bulldozer. He's taking these religious leaders and he's sending word back to them, you're a bunch of snakes. And then he talks about all the judgment that is coming to them and he's telling them that they need to do more than just talk, they need to really repent. So we've got a man, but... He reminds me of a bullhorn, a bullfight, a pit bull, a bulldozer. And if you want to remember it easily like I do, I just say he was bullish. What did he say? It's another question. What did he say? Verse 1 tells us he was preaching. Tells us he was proclaiming. It's the Greek word keruso, which means he's heralding as a public crier. It's one of the reasons why I say here's a man that reminds me of a bullhorn. There he is publicly calling out always the same message. Let's get ready because the great one is coming. Let's get ready. Let's have some confession of sin. Let's have repentance. Let's be baptized because we're getting the, re the road ready for the great one to come. Verse 2, the message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. It's getting closer and closer because the king is coming. And again, we can see in those verses 7 through 12, he spoke with great courage. Pharisees and Sadducees ended up not getting baptized. They didn't get wet. They got reprimanded instead. John spoke about the need for the fruit of repentance. Repentance being more than words. The fruit of repentance. Don't just say, I'm going to change. Change. And for some of these people who were coming, they couldn't do it. And we'll see a little bit later on that they, they faded away later on. The Bible gives several examples of some who recognized their sin, but they didn't have godly sorrow. They did not repent. 
Now, if you'll permit me, I'd like to read 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 and 11. Two verses that I think are the clearest in all of Scripture of what it really means to be sorry for sin. You know, people can be sorry for getting caught. They get sorry because of the consequences that they have to pay. But not everybody is really, truly remorseful for their sin. Here are two verses that tell us how it should really be. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you? What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. And not innocent in the sense that they hadn't done something wrong, but innocent in the sense that having done wrong, they wanted to make it right. Family relationships, Christian friends, don't let somebody say, oh, if I offended you, I'm sorry. That's not real remorse. That's not godly sorrow. Godly sorrow is something like, you know what? I said those words to you, and I should have never, ever said them to you. I am so sorry. It's eating me up inside that I hurt you the way that I hurt you. Is there anything I can do to make that up to you? And can you ever find it in your heart to forgive me? Godly sorrow is not some off-the-cuff remark that says, well, okay, uh, I guess I better apologize. Uh, No, it's, it's, it's eating us up until we make it right. And these people here in 2 Corinthians had made it right. But the Bible has a lot of examples of those who recognized their sin but did not repent, did not have sorrow. Pharaoh, how many times did Sarah kind of repent and then change his mind afterwards? Balaam, and I won't take time to go to these, but I trust that many of you will know these. Achan, the story from Joshua who stole and hid. King Saul, sorry for the wrong things all too often. The rich young ruler. Judas showed some remorse, but not godly sorrow. Well, we've got the question, what did he say? John the Baptist said a lot. He came preaching, preaching a great message of repentance, and then he also had a message that included one more powerful than him who would be baptizing not with water but with the Holy Spirit. Let me ask you this question, and we can answer this from the Scriptures also. What does the fruit of repentance look like? What does it really look like? Because he's telling all these people, I want to see some fruit with this repentance. What does it look like? Turn with me to Luke chapter 3, please. Luke chapter 3 and verse 10. The preceding verses will cover ground where we've already covered where he's preaching this whole idea. He's he's called them the snakes already here, and he's telling them that they've got to bring forth fruit or produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Um, The judgment is there about the cutting of trees. And then they say together, what should we do then? The crowd asked. That's in verse 10. John answered, the man with two tunics should share with him who has none, and the one who has food should do the same. Tax collectors also came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. 
What is the fruit of repentance? The fruit of repentance is doing what we know to be right. It's sharing with other people. It's being honest. It's being fair. It's being all the things that God has called us to be. And so when a group comes insincerely, hypocrites, John the Baptist can call them a bunch of snakes and say, you've got to show forth some fruit for your repentance. Don't just be coming here in order to get in on the crowd attraction. Come here because you really want to change your life. That's the message that he was giving. It tells us in Luke 3.18, and with many other words, John exhorted the people and preached the good news to them. So what did he say? He said a whole lot. He had a great message. What did he witness? And why do I choose the word witness? I choose the word witness because in John chapter 1, verses 6 to 9, it says, There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, that would be Jesus, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. Okay, so he's a witness. What did he witness? Some very, very important things that have come down to us today as being totally significant about who Jesus was first thing he did was to witness about the eternality of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus did not begin when he was born. Jesus pre-existed. Now, if you look at John chapter 1, verse 15, John chapter 1, 15, it says, he cries out saying, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. It's John the Baptist saying of Jesus, he who comes after me, Jesus was going to come after him, has surpassed me because he was before me. Well, John the Baptist was at least six months older than Jesus, so how would Jesus come before him? Well, he's talking about the fact that Jesus preexisted. He's talking about the fact that Jesus was eternal. He also testified to the Messiahship, to the deity, and to the substitutionary atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he did this also in John 1. I'm going to sample a couple of verses between verses 26 and 36. Some of this we've already seen in some of the other accounts. But it says, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Substitutionary atonement. The sacrificial Lamb. The ultimate one. He's pointing and he's saying, Look, There he is. That's the one that's taking away all of our sin. Later on it said John gave this testimony, because he's a witness. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him, that is on Jesus. I would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify, that's why he's a witness again, I testify that this is the Son of God. And remember that term, Son of God. It's not God Jr., God Himself. This is the Son of God. We're talking deity now. Deity of Christ, substitutionary atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. Look at Him. This is Messiah. This is the one we've been waiting for. This is God Himself, the one who will atone for our sin by His death on the cross. 
And he also testified that Jesus is the giver of eternal life. This in John chapter 3. Will you turn with me to John 3, please? John chapter 3. I'm not going to read all of these verses, but verses 23 through, actually through 36 it should be. You look at verse 23, you'll see John was baptizing. tells the specific location. There was plenty of water there. That's why he was baptizing there. People were coming constantly to be baptized. Obviously, this was before he was put in prison. There was an argument, and when we come down to verse 28, he says this, You yourselves can testify that I said I am not the Christ, but I'm sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend, that's him, the best man. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and is now complete. He must become greater, I must become less. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. The man who has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the Spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. The giver of eternal life. And the witness is that of John the Baptist to Jesus. Other scriptures, John chapter 5, Jesus testifying on behalf of John. And he says, there is another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony is valid. All the way in John chapter 10 now, moving ahead, and many people came to him. They said, though John never performed a miraculous sign, all that John said about this man was true. He was a good witness. How did John get along with Herod? It's another question that we could ask. And let me simply answer this very briefly. He got along very well with Herod. Herod respected him. He knew that he was a righteous man. He was a just man. He was afraid of him. He thought he was a prophet. But he ended up killing him. He had him beheaded. You remember the story? Because John the Baptist was not afraid to tell Herod that you've got your brother's wife and that's wrong. And in the scriptures, it says he continuously told him that. He didn't just tell him once. He kept telling him that. And Herod still wasn't going to do anything to him until he got tricked into it by his wife and daughter. And that's another story, and you could read about that if you want to in Mark chapter 6. But how did he get along with Herod? He got along very well with Herod. He was respected as a righteous man and only killed because he was tricked. Herod was tricked into that. What did Jesus say about John? That's another question that requires a lot of Scripture, and it's in the outline for you to look at a little bit later on. But basically, here are a couple of things that Jesus said using these Scriptures. He says, John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. That's the John 5 reference. Matthew chapter 17, he says that Elijah has already come because John had come in the spirit and power of Elijah, and they did not recognize him but they've done to him everything they wished. Matthew chapter 21, verse 32. John came to show you the way of righteousness, 
and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And in Luke chapter 7, verses 24 to 30, some important words that are here. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. John the Baptist, quite a guy. Jesus summed it up. No one had ever arisen greater than John. He was the foremost prophet. He pointed most directly to the Lord Jesus. He was a predictor, and he was also predicted to be coming. But why is the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven greater than he? Because we were on the other side of what Jesus did. We have God's Word and God the Holy Spirit, every one of us within us, to be able to testify exactly what happened. But remember the words of John as well. He was the friend of the bridegroom. Who are we? We're the bride. He was the friend. He was the best man, but we're the bride. The least that make up the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ is greater than even John the Baptist. I want to close with this story. I don't often tell good stories about pastors. I know what you're thinking. That's because there aren't a lot of good stories to say about pastors. Um, This is a man by the name of John Harper. On the one side of the picture, on the other side is a picture of the Titanic. In 1912, John Harper, the newly called pastor of Moody Church in Chicago, was traveling on the Titanic with his six-year-old daughter. After the ship struck an iceberg and began to sink, he got his little daughter, Nana, into a lifeboat but made no effort to follow her. Instead, he ran through the ship yelling, women, children, and unsaved into the lifeboats. Can you imagine that? I can understand the women and children part, and nobody would think anything odd of that, but women, children, unsaved into the lifeboats. Survivors report that he then began witnessing to anyone who would listen. He continued preaching even after he had jumped into the water and was clinging to a piece of wreckage. He'd already given his life jacket to another man. His final moments were recounted four years later at a meeting in Hamilton, Ontario, by a man who said this, I am a survivor of the Titanic. When I was drifting along on a piece of wood that awful night, the tide brought Mr. Harper of Glasgow also on a piece of wreck near me. Man, he said, are you saved? No, I said, I am not. He replied, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. The waves bore him away, but strange to say, brought him back a little later, and he said, are you saved now? No, I said, I cannot honestly say that I am. He said again, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. And shortly after, he went down. And there, alone in the night and with two miles of water under me, I believed. I am John Harper's last convert. Because like John the Baptist, John Harper wanted to make sure that it didn't matter about him at all. What it mattered was that he could point people to the Lord Jesus Christ. We've talked a lot about that this year. We've talked about it in January. We've talked about it at Missionary Conference. We've seen it in an example of John the Baptist. We've seen it in John Harper. So we've got John Harper, we've got John the Baptist. Do we have you? Do we have me? We're willing to take that example to say that in everything, he might be supreme because it's not about me. It's about him. Heavenly Father, thank you for letting us see that in other human beings, letting us see that in your word. 
not only interesting, but it's something that's absolutely fascinatingly challenging to see what goes on with those who decide for me to live really as Christ, to recognize that in all things that the Lord Jesus might have the supremacy and that we might become less so that he can become greater. We thank you for this message. Thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you please take out your hymnals and please open up to hymn number 470, and we're going to sing the first verse only and the refrain of Footsteps of Jesus, 470. Let's all stand and let's sing it together. Father, we thank you for that hymn because the verses go on to tell us that these footsteps of Jesus may lead us in places that are not all that welcome to us. Cold, dark mountains seeking his sheep. They may lead in other places where it's not quite so bad or they may lead us anywhere, but thank you that we can follow in the footsteps of Jesus, pointing people to him, getting out of his way and making certain that Whereas John the Baptist set us that example, that he might become less, that Jesus might become more. In his name we pray. Amen. <laughs> 